Good day and welcome to the House Post podcasts. My name is Brenda Fernie and I've been working in the field of Indigenous economic development for the past nine years. Today I'd like to talk about the field of procurement specific to tenders with Indigenous inclusion. But first let's talk about why there is a need for Indigenous inclusion within government issued tenders. Socio-economical limitations have been placed on Indigenous communities in Canada as a result of colonization. In recent years, key court decisions and with the Truth and Reconciliation Movement, it has allowed Indigenous communities to participate in the global economy on their own terms. Indigenous communities are leveraging the rights and title to create capital and in turn invest in social enterprises that help to build capacity for their membership. Capacity is built from Indigenous communities having the ability to create economic enterprises and in turn, this wealth allows Indigenous communities to invest in programs for their membership to support things like health, education or cultural revitalization. Through economic development, nations are able to generate their own wealth and become less reliant on outside assistance to deal with the many social issues happening on reserves today. These social issues come at a cost to all British Columbians and also to Canada. Indigenous communities through rights and title are often provided with the opportunity to participate in large infrastructure projects from direct awards and or through preferences offered in tenders where Indigenous inclusion is present. The intent is for nations to build capacity and ultimately create employment opportunities for their membership. Unfortunately, Past procurement strategies have failed both the government and First Nations, and so the current climate of Indigenous procurement is in a state of flux. While Indigenous preference is still often mentioned in tenders, the value of Indigenous inclusion is now silent, and so Indigenous communities have lost some of their ability to leverage their rights and title. Non-Indigenous businesses are unable to see the value in working with Indigenous businesses when bidding on tenders. Now, in order to consider how to move forward, let's take a look at the problem and consider the following five points as we look at what has worked and what has not to date. Point number one, local, federal and provincial governments operate numerous ministries as well as crown corporations, each with their own individual procurement policies with little to no consistency. As a result, Indigenous inclusion is leaving First Nations unclear what the rules are. Point number two. In an attempt to work within the rules of a tender, previously a number of non-Indigenous companies entered into joint ventures with First Nation communities. These joint ventures were structured so that on paper the First Nation would have a 51% equity stake. However, the non-Indigenous company would have management responsibility and receive a management fee prior to any profits being shared. To make a long math calculation short, the net result was that First Nations were able to participate in tenders and would receive approximately 10% of the profits, or sometimes less. Governments became disillusioned with this type of arrangement. As well, profits received by Indigenous communities fed the social system instead of resulting in employment opportunities. While some of these joint ventures addressed employment agreements, monitoring employment targets would prove to be costly, and so many of the non-Indigenous businesses were not held accountable. Point number three. 
there were attempts from government to force First Nations into relationships with non-Indigenous organizations during the procurement process. While Indigenous inclusion was provided in some tenders, the lowest price was given the greatest amount of influence in the decision-making as to the preferred proponent. After shortlisting preferred proponents, non-Indigenous companies were instructed to go out and to find Indigenous partners. So you might wonder why this might not work. Well, I can give you my own example of a tender that came up where I had spent quite a bit of time with a non-Indigenous company, building true capacity, working on training initiatives, and coming up with a business arrangement. The company I worked with shared similar values as my community, and so the local Indigenous membership felt comfortable working with them. Unfortunately, we were not the, the shortlisted successful proponents even though I believe we put a strong case forward for Indigenous inclusion. It was obvious upon reflection it was lowest price that won the bid. Following receiving notice that we were not shortlisted, I found myself receiving phone calls from the successful shortlisted proponents, very much in a panic to build Indigenous inclusion with given only a two-week deadline. This did not leave me time to forage a business relation and or negotiate suitable terms. Now, I believe in fairness, government listened to our concerns about this particular tender. They did act in good faith and had thought that my nation would be okay to work with any company. We were able to share concerns about the process, but it was too late. The work was already awarded. And follow-up, however, it left even more confusion with government on how to address Indigenous inclusion. Point number four. Another procurement model that recently was attempted that perhaps in the future might have some merit was the opportunity for non-Indigenous organizations to receive credits for having Indigenous inclusion or for creating training opportunities and employment. The purpose of this was an attempt to create some accountability that would be reported after proponents submitted cost credits upon invoicing. This model was intended to encourage non-Indigenous businesses to sub subcontract to First Nation community-owned businesses. This idea seemed to have some potential, however it did not result in any contract opportunities for Indigenous communities. Now, this was just one tender example, so more investigation is needed to understand why more Indigenous contract opportunities did not happen. Was the value of the credits under the tender not high enough to entice non-Indigenous businesses to partner with Indigenous businesses? Or did the quotes from the Indigenous community-owned business not offer enough value? Or perhaps the tender was issued at a time when infrastructure projects were slowing down and so the objective of the successful proponent was not about reducing price, but instead to keep its own crews working. Point number five. On the positive side, there are examples of Indigenous communities that are not waiting for government to change their procurement policies. Indigenous communities are creating businesses and operating them solely independent of non-Indigenous businesses. An example of this is in my own community, where we have developed businesses such as security, flagging, and or first aid. These businesses can be supplemental to the construction industry when procurement opportunities arise. These are also services prime contractors are often subcontracting out anyways, and so the First Nation is able to provide a service without increasing the overall cost of the project. 
The other benefit to this approach is the Indigenous community is able to continue operating after the major infrastructure project is complete and additional employment for Indigenous people occurs as with the First Nation being the operator of the business, other employment opportunities are created, such as in the areas of human resources, finance, and or administration. While this idea has merit, it does require some internal expertise in the field of operations management. Not all Indigenous communities have this capacity. However, it's a new concept, and so this model should also be investigated further. So the question is, where do we go from here? In order to address the problem of Indigenous inclusion in procurement opportunities, the following data collection might be considered. Create a survey for government, Indigenous, indigenous communities and construction companies to respond to and provide their opinions as to what has worked to date and what hasn't. The other idea is to review best practices across Canada, such as the Canadian Council for Indigenous Business through their PAR program, or otherwise called Progressive Aboriginal Relations Program. The PAR program is a voluntary program where businesses are recognized by receiving a gold, silver, and or bronze status for utilizing best practices in Indigenous relations. The PAR program includes guidelines for businesses when engaging in procurement. As well, the PAR program, there, as well with the PAR program, there may be other opportunities to explore with neighboring provincial policies. As a call to action, I suggest to find out if there is a provincial ministry that might sponsor and support the development of a committee tasked with introducing new procurement guidelines to all of the provincial ministries and provincial crowns so that there is consistency. This needs to have the support at a senior level such as the Premier of the province of BC. In conclusion, why this is necessary is because Indigenous communities that are able to participate in economic development opportunities are able to participate in the modern globalized economy. Essentially, this lessens the dependence on government-run programs and the cost to Canadian taxpayers. One such example of a community is the Okanagan Indian Ban, whose chief, Clarence Louie, has stated that his nation is now at the point where if government funding were to end tomorrow, he would be able to continue with all of the existing programs his community offers today. We can continue with the status quo, but likely First Nations will struggle to find their way out of the post-colonial world or we can work towards putting reconciliation into action by creating true capacity, thus reducing poverty, health issues, and other social problems occurring on reserves across British Columbia. To me, the choice is obvious. Fair procurement policies that support true Indigenous capacity equals career opportunities for Indigenous people, thus breaking the cycle of dependency and reducing the cost to taxpayers. Besides that, it's the right thing to do. In closing, I would like to thank you.